listen to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we talk about the use of military air and spacecraft from their earliest days up to today and into the future. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. This year, we're doing something a little special. 2020 is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, and we wanted to start off this year by talking about some of the events towards the end of World War II. And uh, we're joined today by Stephen A. Bork, who served for 20 years in the U.S. Army, got his Ph.D. from Georgia State University, and has taught at many military and civilian universities, most notably the Army's School of Advanced Military Studies and the Command and General Staff College, where he is a professor emeritus. He's also the author of Beyond the Beach, The Allied War Against France, which examines the Allied bombing efforts in France in 1944. And we generally think of bombing efforts, you know, against Germany, right, in uh, World War II. But in 1944, Allied bombs killed between 60 and 70,000 French civilians. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Hi, Mike. It's glad to be a part of this broadcast and uh, glad to glad to help out. Before we really dive into some of the content of that, you know, bombing of French civilians, I thought it was interesting uh, when we talked one time, you said you don't consider yourself an air power historian, and I'll put that term in loose quotation marks, uh, but you've written about air power here. Uh, so I guess I'm interested in, before we get into the project itself, how did you come to this project? Why get into this? And do you think you kind of bring a different perspective than maybe some of us air power historians maybe have going in? It's a um, interesting project. As you mentioned, I taught uh, military history and history for a long time. And about a decade ago, uh, I was coming back from a uh, student staff ride. I actually took students from California State University, Northridge, on a study course in, uh, in Normandy. We actually did the whole D-Day, the landings, and a whole bit. It was a pretty comprehensive. I'd done it twice. Classic staff ride, you know, where you spend a semester actually having a big overview, then a second semester where we dive in to do a detailed study of what what the students are going to do on the ground, and then we go and do it. So it was really it was fantastic. So I thought I could, after two of those and a bunch of other trips, I figured I had a pretty good handle on Normandy and D-Day and, and what took place. Well, after the trip, I hopped in the car with a couple of my graduate students, and off we went driving around Europe. And on the way back, literally the night before uh, we headed back to Paris, I was having breakfast in the uh, the train station in Metz, and I was you know having my croissant and tea and looking up at the wall there, there's a big plaque on the wall that has hundreds of names. And it translates to the in, in memory of the French railroad workers who died in the summer of 1944. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking about that and I'm going, September, August, September 1944, we did that. And that was the first real inkling. While I know, like every other historian, that we did a lot of bombing Things like the so-called transportation plan, we can talk about that later, the driving the bridges and things. I really didn't have a grasp for the scale, and I wondered. So I ran across the – after breakfast, before we took off, we ran over to the uh, little – one of the bookstores nearby. And there was a book written by a French journalist called Eddie Florentine. And uh, Florentine, it was pretty much a sensationalist, uh, sort of a – it talked about bombs in this area and bombs in that area. Some analysis, but not too much. But it was enough for me to go, hmm, there's something to this. It's much more – complicated than I ever thought in my days of teaching World War II history and D-Day history. So that started the journey, and that's like 2006 or seven. So that's been a long time ago. I had a, had a regular job, which took time. And researching it for an American who isn't living in France, 
is kind of difficult, especially when you want to get into French archives. So that started the process as I started digging. And I didn't want to make it a victim's history. Those are out there. I didn't want to make it a sensationalist history. Those are out there. What I wanted to do was use my expertise, which is in large unit operations. We call it the operational level of war, of course. And that's what I'm looking for. What were the major operations that the, this bombing supported? And so that's how I approached it, which gave us then a whole list of these different operations, all of them coming together under the direction of Eisenhower. So that's what got me started on the process. And again, there was bombing of France. And I guess one of the key points is there was bombing of France and Italy and the Netherlands and Belgium before Eisenhower arrived. However, after he gets there, he centralizes control to include control of the heavy bombers. And by the way, I never or tried to never use the word strategic bomber in the book. He gets control of those and he essentially uses them initially, of course, starting in March and April, but it actually continues all the way until September, until they drive the Germans pretty much out of France. They're used as Eisenhower's long-range artillery. He's got a pull on those all the time. So that was kind of a thing. And, and I only focused on it within the period really just before and after the landings on uh, Neptune, because I didn't, it could make the book much, much larger, of course. But it's uh, it was a, it was a quite an eye-opener to me, the amount of bombing that took place, the fact that until September 1944, Allied air forces dropped more bombs on occupied Europe than they did on, on Germany. And that that really struck me, because if you know the narrative, is that the Air Force is going deep into the heartland of the Reich and taking out the, the ball-bearing plants and destroying cities, whatever, when in fact, until September, more than half of those missions were flown against targets in places like the Netherlands and Belgium and France and Italy that had surrendered, which is kind of interesting. So that's kind of what got me started on it. And then once I got into it, it became a, uh, as we say, a self-looking ice cream cone. And I just kept on. That's There's a lot to unpack there. I would love to dive into. But one of the things that really jumps out at me, not only in what you just said, but you kind of get at this in the beginning of the book a little bit, is this idea about memory of the war and specifically of the air campaign and this idea of the construction of narratives, which is kind of yeah. an academic way of, of just saying the way we tell the story to ourselves. Themselves, right. So yes. can you maybe speak a little bit to the different narratives that have formed around the air campaign and how you see them, you know, maybe needing to be changed a little bit yeah. and how you can contribute to that? Yeah. Now, an interesting term to kids is I don't call it the campaign, which is where we can have it start. Mm -hmm. A campaign is a nationally directed uh, enterprise to take the war to the enemy. So point blank. Is a, is a campaign. Right. The desire, desire were the combined chiefs. But everything I'm talking about are uh, operations within the within Eisenhower. So it's interesting. But the, yeah, the narrative is very different. I mean, the pilots who are flying, and let's start at the one we're all, all most familiar with, the pilots who are flying the heavy bombers, whether it be the, the British at nighttime, uh, generally at nighttime, or the Americans uh, during the day, They've got a pretty set routine. They got set training, set patterns. They get up. They, if they're going against the into the heart of the Reich, that is one. They go through one set of drills to do that in terms of mental preparation and the amount of time that takes. They're flying, and we've all read the stories. And you guys in the the air history community know far better than I. All it takes flying in these very cold aircraft, bundled up in all these these outfits in the middle of winter, to take the, these bombers 
deep and the, the, the horrific what it's like to go through that and encounter the flak and, and fly into the uh, where to pick it, you know, whatever city, Nuremberg, Regensburg, any of them. And then turn around, coming back through the same flak and the same uh, fighters that are everywhere to get back home. That is a heck of a story. And that's the story that it dominates the Air Force narrative that most Americans know. Right. But it's interesting that that narrative, so you read all these reports, seldom do we get any details other they're listed in the logs. They're all listed in the logs where these guys are flying to Le Mans or they're flying to uh, Clermont-Ferrand or someplace where the Michelin factory was, or they're flying to a rail. Seldom are those ever, do we get any narrative about that? They flew a mission. Well, that means they got up in the morning, the 8th Air Force, they got up in the morning, they had breakfast, they did their their, crew, their check, they flew off, especially in 44, since the Germans had massed most of their aircraft for the defense of the Reich. Uh, what you end up having then is, is almost no interaction. I mean, it's very rare in all the reports and accounts I read to find lots of German aircraft hanging around any of these targets. There are a few exceptions. And usually... The exceptions that are there are because they're things like the Ninth Air Force flew over there and it was dawdling. You know, they want they were they were flying around in circles and trying to do something, and the and the Germans said, "Well, okay, we'll we'll come visit." But there's very little narrative and discussion about that. You know, Howard Zinn was one of those guys who, after the war, we all know Howard Zinn, the People's History of the United States. Mm-hmm. He was a, a navigator. I think was a navigator. And he, he flew over one of the first missions where we dropped napalm in history in Royan. And of course, we know what, what Howard Zinn's like as a historian. He was, he was never, he never recovered, not so much from the bombing, but when he went back to talk about, talk to the people living. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's just not a narrative. So that's one narrative, I think, is that the air narrative has traditionally, for lots of reasons, which could take us a lot longer than we have today, to talk about why that narrative is never included Mm-hmm. into the American story. I mean, I, the one is very simple one is there's no independent reporting. I mean, a very simple narrative. There's nobody on the ground. I mean, there are, but the Allies just write it off as propaganda. It, it was obviously Vichy propagandists. But then the other narrative to look at is the one, the narrative of the people on the ground. And that narrative then gets really interesting. For example, if you're bombing a German factor, a, a, a French factory that's supporting the Germans, the people in that, I mean, you know, many of the trucks used in, by the Germans in World War II were built by the French. So are the French, are they victims in this case or are they workers? Well, from the French perspective on the ground, that narrative is they're trying to put food on the table for their families and the Germans have offered them a way to make money. I mean, so that's one kind of narrative. And of course, then the bombing comes in and takes away that livelihood. Another narrative of those living around uh, railroad stations and train stations, you know, we're all used to in the States, you may have, you may work at the train at the rail train station, but in reality, you end up going, you end up commuting to work. Not in in early 20th century France. If you work in the train station or in the factory, you live next door to the train station, uh, the the rail yard or the factory. Which means the people on the ground living there, they're watching everything blow up around them. And then they're saying, well, who did that? Who caused that? Same thing. We're sitting ready to, to land. We're getting ready to land on the beaches and we're destroying the towns behind the line. So imagine living behind the lines. And when the bombs take land, you think the, you think the Americans are coming, the allies are coming to take care of you. The bombs are falling and you're wounded. What's your narrative going to be? You've, you, you've lost a leg and you're seven years old and you've lost a leg. What's your narrative about liking Americans going to be for the rest of your life? 
And when you start talking, the numbers are very difficult to figure. But if you start talking between, you know, 65 and 75,000 Frenchmen, by the way, to put that in context, French population was 10% of the Americans. So we're talking to 750,000 Americans or 700,000 Americans in proportionally. And that's a huge number. That's just a huge number. Then you start figuring the numbers that are wounded. and So their narrative is going to be different than the narrative of the people who are fighting the resistance out in the countryside. And of course, we can go on and on about the different narratives of all these, the Russian the Russian soldiers sitting in foxholes on, uh, on Utah and Omaha beaches. I mean, they've got a totally different narrative than all of everybody's. Right. I don't know if that answers the question, but but the fact is the message that these groups in French, especially in the Northeast and in the Normandy area, they carry with them a totally different memory right. than the memory of liberation. You know, the one the one last example is that is I, I go into the bombing of the bridges and the town or the city of Rouen. I mean, one of my favorite places in France. They don't commemorate D-Day. They commemorate Red Week, the week before D-Day, when the Ninth Air Force, not the Eighth, the Ninth Air Force came in and pulverized those bridges. And of course, since they had been flying escorts, many of them had been flying escorts for the Eighth Air Force, most of those fighter bombers didn't do, were very accurate when they started dropping bombs. You have used, in towards the end of the book, you talk a little bit about how that narrative gets used kind of as propaganda against the Allies. There's a striking poster sure. in that book. I wonder, could, yeah. did you notice a lot of that kind of messaging being used kind of against the Allies towards the end of the war? Is that prevalent? Uh, yes, certainly. Once the Germans, the British started bombing, that is all always there. Once the Americans enter the war and we start bombing intensely, that increases. I mean, the nice thing about working in French archives and French libraries, they've got all this stuff. So you literally can download and sit there and look at the actual or the digital copies of all the newspapers during the war. And they're not, and it's, you say propaganda, while you get the posters are always classic. The basic news newspapers, the daily newspapers that are coming out are just telling the story. And they're not exaggerating a whole lot. I mean, they're not saying this is to provide you freedom from us, but they're certainly pointing out the fact that the Americans arrived, they destroyed a church. I mean, we destroy so many churches and works of art, and there's no accountability in the United States for it. We really don't talk about it. But if you go to places like Cannes, and I've seen, and what's interesting, Mike, is to look at the maps that they gifted a pilots for for and the navigators for identifying the targets. They are so primitive. And what they don't show on the ground, by the way, where you're dropping this bomb, it happens to be a uh, a 900-year-old monastery that's at that intersection. And you'll probably destroy that monastery, but don't worry about it. It'll keep the Germans away for a while. It's That kind of stuff is just not part of the story. But the Frenchmen all know it. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that, you know, as air power historians, we're kind of aware of this precision problem, to put it nicely. You know, we like to think about World War II and and daylight precision bombing is this thing where you can hit the target. And it's kind of well discussed in literature that in World War II, that's not really happening, if at all. Uh, But you are able to take that and apply it to, well, it's not happening in France either. And you get these incidents like you're talking about where the things are destroyed. And one of the things I really thought was interesting about the book is how you've gone to both this local level where you're looking at the French archives kind of in these towns and getting these up close and personal stories, but then you're also sometimes just in the same page or the same section, 
comparing that to the American kind of official accounts uh, in, you know, whether it's the 8th or or whoever it is, their kind of operational records. Can you speak to some of the dissonance maybe between those two accounts that you found in the archives? Yeah, they're fascinating. First of all, the French accounts are brilliant. These reports are basic official reports in the French departmental archives, which, by the way, it makes it difficult for Americans, not so much the language, but just the time it takes to get in there and go through these things. But the, the local police, I mean, the, the prefects, the French officials on the ground, and the system's still fa- fascinating. Although they talk about France being divided and they're chopping th- parts of France off to go to Germany, the basic French departmental prefect system is functioning brilliantly. And so the, you'll have these reports written by prefects or uh, the gendarmerie, the local police, and the local the local defense passive, passive defense guys. And essentially, they're just going to say, we hit this town, town was bombed. They can literally plot where every bomb, almost where every bomb in, front in these towns fell, who they killed, what they did, how many people died. You go up to the north where, where they're bombing for the crossbow attacks against the V1, V2s. And this is this is little villages with woods and lots of, so you know, the reports will go down the champ. I mean, where does the bomb file? In the field, in the field, kill two cows. I mean, this is what the way you're reading the reports. Killed three people, killed the family Jones. And so you're reading these, these are primary sources that tell when the, and they did a minute, when the bombs arrived, when they fell, where they fell. The Americans are and the British are swag. They think they got it right. But more than once, I've been able to track an American bombing mission, and the French town has no report. The town, one town over, it's got the report. They actually missed the town completely and hit another target, but they'll go back and report that they hit that time. I mean, the, the inaccuracy of the of navigation is, in my view, is mind-boggling. And certainly, they haven't grown up, grown up, again, with all this idea that they flew to the target. They knew where they were going. They and they really—they're close. If their enemy target, they all hit the target. The, the initial report that comes out by the by the people flying the airplanes is we all hit the target. We did it well. Then the good news is their photo reconnaissance comes in after that, and they come in and go, nah, not quite. You hit this part of the bridge, but not the rest of it. By the way, the rest of this town behind it is all burning. You know, and one of the other pieces which we're not good at, which is a failure at the time. And, um, you know, Robert O. Paxton, who endorsed the back of the book, who's the dean of American World War II French studies. The guy is uh, an amazing human being. But he pointed out that we really didn't use the resistance well. And that's been borne out by other studies that I've looked at. We really didn't use the resistance as we could have to provide the reports that uh, would have been a little more clarifying about what we're doing. So yeah, there's a discrepancy. And again, it's not in anyone's interest to report, yeah, we hit this target. No, by the way, America, your Air Force uh, destroyed, killed 700 people and, and you know, sent, and it's just not in our interest. No one's gonna do that. Speaking of those kinds of up close and personal stories in the archives, there's these incredible accounts in your book where you tell these little anecdotes of people, the victims of the bombing, you know, having to deal with the aftermath and they're quite moving and they're the one that stuck out to me the most was you know this person that has to go to the morgue and identify the remains of the family and that has been just bombed and obliterated and there's stories like that kind of spread out throughout your book and just kind of a methodological question behind that is i'm sure you're swimming in anecdotes like that when you're in the archives and kind of how do you find the most effective ways kind of as a writer and as a historian to kind of put the personal human face on these stories in such an effective way. 
Yeah, well, you know, we build on good on good writers. You know, we build on the Barbara Tuckmans of the world, and the, and the uh, and they've got Rick Atkinson. Let's give him credit as is. I mean, they re, you build on those writers who know how to do that. I find their storytelling uh, brilliant. In general, one of the good news is every ten years, the uh, museum at uh, the Memorial in Cannes, starting about '84, I think started sort of sending, hey, have you got any stories about growing up? Let's talk about it. So there's a whole collection of this Timonage, this testimony that that archive has been collecting for all about Normandy. Now, it's not there for everywhere. It's a little more difficult. But I'll tell you, that is a great resource for anybody writing about it. Some of those are actually copied or are at the Eisenhower Library, which is kind of nice. The story you talk about, the one you mentioned about going to the morgue, is fascinating that I found that story in another French book that I found in a very local French bookstore in Rouen and took it. I said, wow, that's just, that's powerful. I put it in an article I wrote. The author of the book contacted me and we have since become really good friends. And it turns out that was his uh, grandmother who was killed and grandfather who were killed there and his his, uh, his aunts and uncles. And so he lived with his father who never recovered from that experience for his entire life and didn't talk about it. Just like PTSD, he didn't talk about it until just before he died. And I'll tell you, that is uh, very powerful. And I've gotten other stories. In fact, I've gotten correspondence from the French edition of this book where someone's read it and said, you get it pretty close, but not quite. For example, Lee. Leaflets. We talked about dropping leaflets. Well, in this one case, Corel, who in his family, and I, his name escapes me, top line, the French inventors of the helicopter. And so they're in town of Lesseux, and they got the leaflets to say, stay away from the rail yards. Well, they live fairly close to a rail yard. So they moved away from the rail yard into the center of the town. And of course, as you know where this is going, they bombed the center of the town and killed the whole family. If they stayed in the house originally that they had been in, it wasn't touched. So it's really, it's the kind of stories, it's, you know, the complexity of this story. Yeah, these stories, you could literally can just keep adding them. There are, there are, there are, and there, you can find them online also. In some cases, you could find them online where the, not so much the people who lived in that time, but the children and grandchildren of those who suffered want to know more, just like our modern genealogy stuff in the States. They're trying to discover more and more about what happened. And it's just fascinating when you find it. And again, it's not victim's history. You know, we know those books, Terman and those like that. But what I think is important is that we put a human face. You know, if you compare it, the landings on D-Day, we know where every battalion commander went to the bathroom, almost, (laughs) right? Got more detail. We know every time that anybody stopped and and had a problem, but we have none. The Americans know nobody that dies on the French side during this war, and that's really the whole. I get to the bottom line was what I was trying to do was give that human face a little bit to those who are there in France. Yeah. I want to go a little further with this because I'm sure there's some people maybe listening to this or or in your potential audience that, you know, some of the things you're making might sound a little controversial. I think your your evidence is solid, of course, for what you're saying. But there's kind of this the elephant in the room that you're getting at when you're talking about, you know, the allies are bombing all these, you know, French civilians that are also supposed to be our allies. And you go pretty far. There's a point in the book where you talk about, you know, violating the laws of war, which is something you say the allies do. And I think yeah. You, you have particularly strong words about the use of delay fuses to be kind of almost similar to a kind of a terrorist sort of tactic. Yeah. Um, some people might find this controversial and I want to kind of embrace that and run with it and let you talk a little bit about, you know, how far you think that goes sure. with violating the laws of war and what that means and, and how you unpack that. Yeah. 
So, so the narrative that we all grow up with and know is the official narrative. The official, whether it be Army, Air Force, Navy, whatever, is you know, green books and the obviously they're not going. That, that's not going to come up in any of their readings. That's just that the idea that there may be something inappropriate. I mean, somehow even talking about things like bombing a Monte Cassino in Italy, they managed to sidestep that a little bit. So, some cases, some events are just the way it's going to happen. In some cases, if you live next to an airfield. You're going to get bombed and you got it. That's going to happen. I have issues. Uh, in fact, if you're near any military installation, I mean, I, they, the French don't have issues with that. That's the, just the way it is. You're in, in that. But there are a couple of cases where I think there there's some question to what we're doing. It did. And again, it's and one of the caveats that I put all the time is these are young men and they're all young men who are tra- wrestling with the with the there's there is no doctrine. Everybody talks about Douay and everything. there's no doctrine in existence on what to do if the if you're bombing targets in an enemy-occupied state, Douay, Mitchell, Trenchard, and you're, you, you know, you're one of the Air Force historians. I mean, none of these guys have said, okay, the en- here's the world. The enemy now occupies the terrain. Now what do you do? Now Spatz and uh, Spatz and uh, Doolittle and, and Harris, they're clear. They just say, ignore it. Take the war to the enemy. And I think that's important up front. Nobody in the air community wanted to do this. None of them want to bomb France at all. So they are being forced against their will. And in fact, Spatz and Doolittle talk about committing war crimes. I mean, the Air Force is talking about that in advance. Churchill's talking about it in advance. So it's not like there's any surprises. Most everything that happens is just, you know, bad stuff. Bombing the bridges, most effective way to stop the Germans. And all this is about keeping the Germans away from the Normandy beaches. That is incredibly effective. It happens, but we are incredibly inaccurate. The second thing is the transportation plan. And I don't, I have reached a point where I don't call it a plan. I call it a target list because a plan means you have clear objectives goals. You have clear courses of action, operational approach, and you've thought it through. Well, they really don't. Uh, they're based on, a, they literally are basing all this off a marine biologist, or a, not a marine biologist, but a biologist, Zuckerman, who is Tedder's uh, scientific advisor, who thinks it all works in Italy. And essentially, they start taking out all these rail lines. There's no real thought is there about there being options. And that's that's a problem. So what we end up doing is doing a war of attrition against all the rail lines, rail target centers they can hit. They don't call it Operation uh, Good Speed or anything like that. It's the transportation plan. There really isn't one. What's interesting, of course, with the transportation, I call this incompetent. As a planner, I call this incompetent. What's interesting about this, two things. One is there actually is a tar- a list on these targets where they write next to them how many people they think they will kill when they're destroying these ta- these rail lines. I mean, that's kind of interesting. How many civilians is it worth? And what's that analysis look like? And the analysis is pretty thin, frankly. Uh, the second thing, of course, with the transportation plan is they need to use those same rail networks after the landing. And of course they can't. And so what ends up happening is the Red Ball Express, which is freaking worthless. I, I think the thing with the transportation plan is how did they think it through? Uh, what was the plan? What would it, what were the other options think? The place where I come down pretty hard on war crimes, on a war crime, is the bombing of the towns behind the beach. Okay, and essentially 20, 20 or so, and the number always changes back and forth. And actually, in terms of actual bombing, kind of expands a little bit. And essentially, the idea, and this is Montgomery and the Army Group Ground Force Commander wants this done. And essentially, it's going to we're going to take because of the way French villages are built. 
with the around a stream and then all the and the outside are all the farms and that area. The idea is we bomb the center of the town so that the Germans have to go around. For lots of reasons, just pick up the Geneva and Hague Conventions and read it. You do not destroy a town in advance in case something happens there. You know, you just don't do that. And that's, I mean, that is easily, every one of them would be a separate, separate count in a war crimes trial. Whatever you want to say about we had to do it, I'm not convinced, because the Germans will tell you, they were able to ride around it. The Germans were able to ride around those things. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that particular issue of dropping the bombs on those rail networks, I mean, on those towns, to me, is a, is a no-kidding war crime. I mean, I don't know if that answers the question, but it really... I, it does uh, answer the question quite, quite strongly. Um, and you have laid all this at the feet of Eisenhower specifically. I do like, you mentioned Spots and Doolittle and some of these other yep. folks really kind of wrestling with this and really not wanting to do it yes. um, partially for moral reasons, but also partly for, you know, air power theory reasons that they yes. had. Um, yeah. It's a multiplicity of reasons. Exactly. Uh, and you've really kind of said Eisenhower is the one pushing for this kind of almost yeah. alone. Um, and because he's well, the interesting, yeah, go ahead yeah, and, like, and just elaborate the, on that. The thing that's interesting about this is Eisenhower, because of his experiences in Italy, where he had to beg for air force to help help stop the German tax. So they are talking about it at Anzio and Salerno, Salerno. He's determined to control the air force. I don't think Eisenhower particularly cares how they're used. I thought just know he wants to use them. The driving force for how they're used is really going to be Lehigh Mallory for the AEAF, who's who's into one method of the transportation plan, for example. And the other, of course, is going to be Montgomery, who's absolutely determined that they're going to drop the bridges and they're going to drop and hit bomb those towns. So those two, those are the things that really, really get at me. Is that because the Air Force guys don't want to do it. Army and, and, and U.S. and Brits, they want nothing to do with it. Uh, because they know they're killing Frenchmen who are supposed to be on their side. And they got to live with them in the years to come. Right. So I'll ask the question that maybe some people might be thinking as they're reading through this or listening to some of this is, you know, was this all worth it? You know, is this something that should have happened at all? Or what are your thoughts? I know this is a little get, a little bit getting into kind of alternative history, kind of, you know, what if games, you know, but do you think this bombing should have been focused on Germany alone? Or is this what needed to happen to win the war? And, and that's how we should think of this, or or how do you you square all of that? Yeah, this is a, yeah, a good question. No, absolutely. And so so Eisenhower, you can blame him or give him credit. The right answer is he employs the Air Force as a unified part of the combined arms, which is a again, as I mentioned, I'm not an air power historian. I look at the from a combined arms perspective. You absolutely have to do this. There are some pieces of it. Again, it's not that it was done necessarily willfully. In some cases, you know, the Air Force was telling the Army for 25, 30 years that we can do the, we can bomb targets. We can use precision bombing and hit these things. I mean, long going way back into the 20s. We know that's not true. We know they sold the, the politicians and the military guys guys a bill of goods, but the military guys believed them, which is part of the problem, which meant when Montgomery is Montgomery thinks that these guys can produce wonders for him. Some things have to be done. You got to bomb airfields. You got to take out airfields. No question about it. You need to go after factories that are producing as part of the point blank, especially aircraft and aircraft parts, engines and uh, you know, railroad pieces. I mean, those things are there and those are legitimate targets. Sorry if you're living next to the legitimate target. Um, the bridges, another absolutely 
It, dropping those bridges, absolutely had to drop those bridges uh, across the Seine and the Loire rivers so they can't get there. Absolutely needs to be done. Fortitude, Operation Fortitude, which never gets discussed. I mean, one piece of that is they're dropping bombs of, of all those towns in Apotecalais in that area. What's the measure of merit? Make noise. They don't even have to hit the target. They're dropping through 100% overcast clouds. I have photos of bombs falling. There's no way they can see where these bombs are falling. They're going through these clouds. You can see the bombs, the dark bombs against the, the white clouds. It's, it's nutty. I mean, people who die in that are going to have a problem. you got to go after the V1 and V2 launchers. That absolute destruction. Stops that from starting anything until the middle of June. Absolutely, incredibly successful. And the, the, the Germans are never able to launch a V1 or V2 from, from those fixed sites. They had to do them by, by uh, temporary sites and uh, almost like mobile SAMs. Yeah, I'm totally opposed to, the, uh, to, to what they do. I think they did not have to take out those towns. They, did, they could have brought aircraft, enough aircraft to surge on those towns behind the lines. If there are Germans moving in there, they could have surged that if they needed to. That to, that was preemptive. And that, that to me, we could go on all day about analogies of why that shouldn't shouldn't have happened. But yeah, as a general rule, most of it had to happen. Some of it should have happened better. But the air power had to be an integrated uh, component of the landings, or they wouldn't have had to happen the way they did. Well, that's great. I think whether anyone agrees or disagrees with your analysis, it's it's the kind of thing that has to be taken into account when we write these kinds of histories. Yep. Um, yep. and, and talked about. So I think you, you've provided a, a lot of important insight and work for the field. I think it's important just so we know what happened. That is part of the history book. The French know what happened. The Belgians, a story totally not told. The Belgians are really hurt by all this, and I haven't even explored that. But these things are just part of the part of the hit the war, and we ought to know about them. Yeah, well, I'm glad that this came out and that we can know about it now and uh, continue to explore that in, in more detail as more historians keep contributing to this. Uh, so I think that's all the time we have. Uh, I'm Mike Hankins. You can find me on Twitter at, at Hankenstein with T-I-E-N and online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music is created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonstodrones.com slash contact. If you'd like to submit an article to us for publication, you can do so at balloonsofdrones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.